What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Built Different Podcast. My name is Zach Clinton. I'll be your host. And as we continue to grow, I'll have friends joining me each week to interview some of the leading experts in the fields of motivational speaking, mental health, ministry, and even sports. Our goal is to instill hope, encouragement, and motivation in and through your life today. And our prayer is that after each episode, you'd be more equipped and encouraged to look, love, and live more like Christ from the inside out. That's our definition of what it means to be built different. So I hope you're ready. You better buckle up. Let's roll. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to this week's edition of the Built Different Podcast. I hope and pray you guys had a blessed week up to this point and are really just enjoying your month of May so far. You know, if you weren't able to join us last week, we're in the middle of our mental health awareness series as May is Mental Health Awareness Month. And this is really just a time where we wanted to have real conversations with some of the leading experts in the mental health field about the many challenges and complexities people are struggling with in terms of their mental and emotional health and well-being in culture and society today. Last week, we had the opportunity of hearing from Dr. Mark Mayfield, where he took us on a journey of what the path to wholeness really looks like, mentioning that we must learn how to embrace, experience, and express our emotions in a healthy way. He also helped us understand that we must develop a greater and more diverse emotional language in order to better understand and express the pain we may find ourselves in. Because let's be real, the last three to four years... They haven't been easy on anyone. Prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, we had a, a mental health crisis in our country and world community. But since then, with the lockdowns, loss, loneliness, the racial tensions and trauma, the rioting, sexual abuse explosion, election mess, race for a vaccine, the vaccine rollout, big tech suppression, censorship, Afghanistan, Ukraine, inflation, money stress, parental rights challenges, abortion and life battles, the fentanyl substance abuse crisis, the rash of shootings, crime explosion, the transgender identity and ideology storm, the midterm elections. I could go on and on. You guys, we've now moved from a mental health crisis into a mental health disaster in our country today. People are exhausted. They're emotionally shot with stress and anxiety, depression, and now addiction soaring like we've never seen it before. And one of the most sobering things we've seen in the mental health space that not too many people are acknowledging or wanting to talk about is the heartbreaking spike we're now seeing in terms of suicidality, especially among our kids, with it becoming the second leading cause of death for our teens. You guys, that's heartbreaking. And it's time we start doing something about it. It's time we start having these types of conversations and addressing this very issue. So today, that's exactly what we're going to be diving into. During this episode, we're going to be having a real conversation about suicide. And I couldn't think of a better guest than the one that's going to be joining us today, who's one of the leading experts in trauma and crisis work, and someone who has been an integral pioneering leader for us here at the American Association of Christian Counselors, serving as our Senior Director of Advancement, Special Projects, and Church Engagement. Her name is Mrs. Jennifer Ellers. You guys, beyond that, Jennifer is a professional counselor, a life coach, a crisis response trainer, an author, and a renowned speaker. She speaks extensively and provides training, counseling, and coaching in the fields of grief, crisis, and trauma work. And she is especially known
known around the globe for her work in and passion for developing faith-based suicide prevention training programs. She's a busy woman who has constantly been doing kingdom work. And let me say this, though. I've had the opportunity of growing up under Jennifer's wing and really getting to look up to her and admire her so much for all of her work throughout the years. But I can truly say that not only is she one of the most impressive people I've had the opportunity of knowing throughout my life, but she's also one of the kindest and most intentional individuals I've ever met. Her love and her compassion for others is beyond compare. And she has a real heart for coming alongside of and seeing and hearing and encouraging the broken. During our conversation today, Jennifer is not only going to share her testimony and her story about what really propelled her into the profession and field, but she's also going to take us on a journey of how we can better recognize, respond to, and refer individuals who are struggling with suicidal ideation in order to receive the best and most effective care and counsel possible. Jennifer will equip us today with incredible tips and techniques that we can begin implementing within our daily lives, remembering that any person can make a difference in someone's life. And that being said, something my grandfather would always tell my dad, and now my dad has passed this down to me, is the old lesson that you can't treat what you don't see. In other words, we're called to be attuned to those that are in front of us. My friends, make sure you see somebody today. Make sure that the busyness of your life doesn't allow you to overlook the individual that may be broken standing right in front of you. And let me share, if you are that broken individual, my friends, there is help and there is hope. Being someone who serves as a Christian counselor in the field myself, I can assure you that there are people out there that care about you and that desperately want to help you. So please do not be afraid to ask. Unfortunately, this culture and society, I get it. We've made far too many people believe that brokenness is equivalent to embarrassment or humiliation, but that's just the furthest thing from the truth, you guys. And I believe this, that all hell would love nothing more than for you to believe those lies. Why? Because it makes you feel isolated and it makes you feel alone. But what I want to remind you today before we get started and dive into this very important conversation is that you are never alone. Please, please, please ask for help. Why? Because you matter. And the purpose that God has created and destined you for can only be lived in and throughout your life. My friends, I pray that this interview would be both impactful and insightful for you and your journey forward. Without further ado, help me introduce my incredible friend, Mrs. Jennifer Ellers. Miss Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Zach. You know this is a passion of mine. Yes, ma'am. This is um, definitely a very sensitive topic that we're going to dive into today. But I just wanted to say up front how blessed we are um, to have your wisdom and to have your knowledge joining us today. I cannot wait just to sit with you and to unpack some of these very important things right now and where we're at in a culture and society. For those of our listeners that maybe don't know, May is actually Mental Health Awareness Month. It's a time that we want to celebrate and have some real 
real conversations with experts in the field like yourself on just some very important topics to help people navigate the mental health disaster that we really find ourselves in. And so, Miss Jennifer, um, something that has burdened me, something that I know burdens you, like you've said already, you're very passionate about the topic, is just this consistent concern and issue that we're seeing surge really since the COVID pandemic hit being that of, of suicide. Um, you know, it has impacted just so many different age groups, so many different people from all different populations. But one just staggering statistic that I read in a recent CDC report came out that identified that in 2021, around 30% of our girls in this country had seriously contemplated suicide. Yeah. Ms. Jennifer, that's not only a sobering statistic, it's almost to the point of being unbelievable. So as we get started, uh, what do you think is really happening in culture that's really fueling this epidemic of suicidality? And let me mention, uh, I'm going to answer that in two questions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Zach, the first is the specific to our young girls. Mm. And that's probably teenage and young adult girls are particularly vulnerable right now. And that I do think that was in light of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, one of the things that was exacerbated by the pandemic is isolation, social right. isolation. Right. And we can't underestimate how much impact that had on young developing brains and minds mm. because it was difficult for all of us we were very isolated and separated from one another for a year to two years at best mm. and while for you and i as adults that did seem like a long time think about the percentage of their life for younger people right. and kids and such um, key developmental times mm as childhood and adolescence when a year to two years in your life make a huge difference mm -hmm. and to be separated from real human relationships right. in that time um, from your peers and uh, from actual classroom experience so there were a lot of setbacks but the social isolation in just in my opinion i'm going to give you my opinion zach because i yeah. don't think any of us know why in particular young women, but I think because females tend to be more social from a very young age. Mm. And that means uh, if you show little infant boys and infant girls yeah. the same kind of toy, little baby boys will babble sort of equally at a ball mm. <laughs> or <laughs> a, a, a doll, meaning, right. uh, but little girls, little girl infants will babble and make eye contact more with a toy that has a face, mm. anything that has a face. Wow. So that means a stuffed animal or a doll more so than a ball or a car. And so what we know is from a very young age, relationships, while they're important to both genders, there's something more vital about their very being in essence mm. to females. That means the relationship is primary. And I think, this is just my opinion from yeah. my research, that therefore social isolation as well as the dissension that we see in a lot of the pain in relationships, the sort of polarization of society, some of that has had much more of an impact on young women mm. in terms of making us feel pain, in pain and uh, emotional pain and hopelessness. Um, there are a million other things that I could give you, but I think that's one of the primary reasons that we've seen yeah. uh, young girls really struggling out mm. of this pandemic.
Wow, Miss Jennifer, what an incredible start just hearing um, about some of the brokenness, like you said, in the pain that really stems around isolation. I believe, like you, um, that we were created for relationship. In Genesis, from the beginning of time, Genesis 2.18 is the very first place that God said something is not good and that not good is that for man to be alone. And so isolation is the enemy to growth, to our faith, um, to anything worth value in this life. And so in, in knowing that, Miss Jennifer, um, one thing that we always kind of bring up here on the podcast is there's always a backwater or some, you know, some story behind why you have the passions and the purpose and the calling that God has called you to today. So I'm interested in terms of this passion around suicidality, what was it for you that really kind of kicked this off for you? Well, that's a great question, Zach. And, and there are two answers. One is a professional, but the other is very personal. And I'll, yeah. I'll share a brief version of that story too. But uh, professionally, obviously, I've been involved in crisis response and trauma for a very long time. And when yeah. you have people that have gone through really difficult things from shootings to disasters and the loss of loved ones, suicide comes up. Yeah. It just comes up. And so I began to study more about that and learn more about that. However, there was something personally in my life that happened to that really influenced my passion for this. And let me say, we always say there are no six degrees of separation in suicide. Yeah. Every person knows someone whose life has been personally impacted in some way, whether mm -hmm. they were suicidal, uh, they know someone who died by suicide or know someone who lost a loved one to suicide. Uh, but for me, the deeply personal thing that happened Happened when was when I was just a teenager myself. Um, I had it was it was one summer, the summer um, that I had turned sixteen. I was sitting in my home in Kentucky, and I there was a knock on the door, and it was one of my friends from the neighborhood. He was two years younger than me, but we had really grown up together. We right. grew up in the same neighborhood, uh, playing softball together and going to church together. He and I were actually baptized on the same Sunday morning wow. together. We had gone to the same church. And uh, he had lost his dad when he was very young. His, his dad died, I think, when he was just an infant or a toddler, and he was raised by a single mom. Hmm. But what a fine young man. And um, he, I knew he had gone through some tough things recently, including a breakup with his first serious girlfriend. Hmm. Not uncommon um, catalyst for yeah. uh, teenagers. But when he knocked on the door, he came in, and I said, hey, what are you doing? And he said, well, I know that you care about me, so I really wanted to come and tell you that I have my dad's gun in my bedroom at home, and I'm going, going to go end my life. Hmm. Well, Zach, I, I was not a counselor at that point. Right. I had I was a 16-year-old who was terrified. I'd had no training, no equipping, nothing in my life prepared me for that moment. All I knew mm. is that I did care about this young man in his yeah. life, and I was going to do everything in my power to keep him alive. Mm. Um, but I, um, at that time, I had my driver's license, and I had a car and car yeah. keys, and just said, let's go for a drive, because mm. I knew that if I could get him in the car, I could get him away from his house and the gun, and maybe we could talk. Uh, we drove around for literally hours, I think. Um, you know, I kind of lost track of time, but we talked and I cried and he cried and mm. we talked and I kept saying, um, you know, is there anybody that you'd be willing to talk to other than me? And, right. and most of the time it was, no, I'm not going to talk to my mom. I'm not going to talk to a counselor. I'm not mm. going to talk to our pastor. But finally, uh, after several hours, um, he did say, well, there was one friend of his on their football team who had mm. always been kind to him 
And I said, well, what if, would, would you let me take you to his house if he's home where you could stay with him because I'm not leaving you alone. At mm -hmm. least I knew enough, we're not leaving you alone. I'm not letting you get anywhere near where I knew this weapon was. Right. And um, this was before the days of cell phones. So I know you don't remember this time. <laughs> <laughs> True. Zach, but some people out there listening might remember, I actually had to stop at a gas station and go use a payphone. We mm -hmm. did that back then. <laughs> and I, I called um, this friend and thankfully he was home and I just said, Bobby's in trouble and I need to bring him to your house. Is that okay? And he said, yeah, come on. And I brought him there. Um, I, I trusted him to Bobby. He looked me in the eyes and said, I promise that I will take care of him. I won't leave him alone. I'll mm -hmm. make sure he's okay. He kind of knew what had happened. Um, and then when I got home, I had to explain to my parents why yeah. I had left and, and not told them where I was going. And of course I, I thought, oh, I'm in huge trouble. But, but <laughs> when they understood what I was doing, that I was helping a friend, we then contacted his mom and his pastor. And long story short, um, he got through that really rough time and mm -hmm. he was fine. And I had the blessing of seeing him just a few years ago at a, a gathering back home of mutual friends and got to sit with him and his beautiful wife and two wow. lovely daughters. Uh, he has a great life now. He's a principal, school principal, mm. um, does part-time pastoring of a church. And, and so he had just had a crisis in his life. Yeah. And, and he just needed to get through that period of time. And so that experience for me, Zach, and, and yeah. granted, it could have been a, a tragic story, but thankful, mm. thankfully to God, um, that experience turned out though to encourage me to say, what was it that I did right? What did mm -hmm. I do wrong? Could there have been things that I would have done differently? And that mm -hmm. impacted me. And I often think about that when I do these trainings, because of course, sometimes I teach professionals, but a lot of times I teach people who could be that 16-year-old girl yeah. that gets a knock on the door or mm -hmm. any age person that will be the person that someone talks to. And I want them to be as equipped as possible, yes. <laughs> more equipped than I was. Yeah. But at the same time, know that any person, any person can make a difference in someone's life. Mm, so true, Miss Jennifer. Any person can make a difference. And I'm sitting here listening to that story, and I praise the Lord that your friend was willing to come over there to knock on your door to ask for help. But also, I praise the Lord that you were willing to come alongside of your friend and really just help him during those moments, to sit with him, to connect with him, to love on him, to remind him of his worth and his value. And then seeing how that experience has just been a catalyst to really propel you to the heights that you are as an expert really in the field. Like you said, training people on this very topic because you looked at what are some things I did well, what are some things I could have done better, and how God has used you since. I can't thank you enough um, for what you do personally, because I can think of several people, we'll get into this here as well, just whether it was a friend or someone that I knew, an acquaintance from high school that either committed suicide or people that I've walked alongside of that have been impacted by it deeply and are even in the grieving process today of that yeah. still. And, and I want to dive into that, but something that I have heard said, Miss Jennifer, is that for people who are suicidal, it isn't that they hate life. It's that they hate life the way that it is. 
they've almost come to this point of brokenness, right? Where it seems so difficult um, or at times impossible maybe to see an opportunity for change or even just a, a brighter tomorrow. Uh, we've chatted about this as well and you kind of brought it up or insinuated it. Suicide, it can happen in the snap of a finger, right? Because of impulsivity, a crisis situation that leads somebody to reacting within, you know, like you said, 10 or so minutes or it can be this long drawn out process of rumination, which is this inability to get out of one's head to begin. All they're doing is dwelling on maybe these negative thoughts or these negative internal beliefs that they developed over time about themselves, ultimately leading them to believing that this world would be better off without them. And that is just such a, a heartbreaking thought for me that someone could get to that point. They do. And yeah. Zach, let me say, and you're right. Yeah. Um, the reasons that people become suicidal yeah. and the process of that are so varied and so different. Right. And there are some people who struggle with chronic mental illness yeah. Yeah. and uh, they struggle for years. Yeah. There are other people, especially younger people, for mm. whom a crisis may happen and literally within minutes they right. may make this life altering decision mm. to attempt suicide. So, there is no one right. path towards yep. suicidality. Um, and just like that, there's no one answer. Mm -hmm. However, there are some sort of universal truths. Some of the best research, um, Zach, that I've seen yeah. um, is some done by a, a psychologist named Dr. Thomas Joyner, who has done a lot of research on the suicidal mind and his explanations of some of the things that really are common for mm -hmm. the vast majority of the people who end up attempting to or taking their own lives. Um, and, and what's really going on in their mind is exactly what you were talking about. Mm -hmm. He said there are a couple things that you have that have to be present. And one is the desire to die, but it's not because they don't want to live anymore. They just right. don't want to live the life they're living. And they have come to believe that that can't change or it's not going to change. Mm. And then you add to that um, something that is, like you said, somewhat unthinkable, but for them it becomes true. And that mm. is they really truly believe the majority of people, when they get to the point that they're suicidal, they believe that the world would be better off without them. Mm. They believe that they don't matter anymore. And this sense of uh, it's called thwart, he calls it thwarted belonging or a sense of alienation, but it's that isolation uh, and, and belief that the people in my life, the people who love me, would probably be better off if I wasn't alive. Mm. And then the world in general, it doesn't really matter. Right. I, I don't make a difference in the world. I don't matter to the world. And so that sense of uh, sort of thwarted belonging or alienation uh, can really lead people uh, to believe falsely, but mm. still believe that suicide is the best option for them, that ending right. their life is really solving a, a problem. Mm. And even though that's not true, in that moment for them, that's what they believe. That's right. And it's almost like culture and society promotes this idea of hiddenness, right? If we struggle with these thoughts or these internal beliefs about self, then all of a sudden we have to keep those to ourselves, work through them by ourselves. And there's this myth that we were talking about even before we jumped on here, which is, you know, even as a, a mental health professional for a lot of counselors, for pastors, I know this is a huge fear for parents, right? Is 
you know, if I bring up this topic of suicide to somebody, will that potentially implant this idea for them to commit self-harm to oneself, right? And that's the furthest thing from the truth because what I truly believe is, you know, they want to be fully seen in these moments. So by bringing it up, by showing the care to have these types of conversations that we're having today, it almost brings a sense of relief that it's like, man, I needed that. I need somebody to reach out. I need somebody to ask. I need somebody to talk to. Miss Jennifer, can you just explain to our listeners how important and imperative these types of conversations are? They are critical, Zach. They make yeah. all the difference in the world. Let me say, as I, I teach about suicide a lot, yeah. and um, my husband and I have written a, a whole two-day course that yep. we go around the country, oftentimes teaching. I'll teach intensives. I'll teach for two days. And one of the things that I say over and over again is do not be afraid to ask the question. And mm -hmm. the question, are you thinking of suicide? Are you considering taking your own life? But in spite of what we teach, that it is a myth that you'll put that in people's mind, yeah. that is not true. The fact most of them, like you said, are already thinking about it. And it's a relief for them right. if someone asks or brings it up. People are still afraid. Mm -hmm. This is how much that is true, Zach. After sitting with me for two days in class, a woman reached out afterwards. And I have them do a lot of class discussions with the other people in class. And she sent me an email saying, I'm concerned about one of the young women that was in our class. And she and I did uh, exercises together. And I knew she was really struggling. So I've been emailing her after class. And I think she's really depressed. And I think she might be considering suicide. So I asked the woman, have you asked her? Mm. This is after two days of sitting in class with me, right. hearing me say, ask the question, ask the right. question. And she said, no. Mm. <laughs> I'm right. like, oh, have, I've been teaching, but I know why yeah. she didn't. She didn't, and it's the reason the majority of people are afraid, like you said, of asking the question. They're actually afraid of the answer. Mm. They're so afraid that if I ask the question and someone says yes, then what will I do? Then it will be incumbent upon me. But let me say, they're thinking about it whether you ask or not. The question is whether you have an opportunity to intervene before they take action or not. And by the way, the vast majority of people, like this young woman, I said, ask yeah. the I said, ask her. Yeah. She asked her and she said, no, I had an attempt years ago and I would never do that again. Mm. And see, and it was in this big yep. sigh of Breath relief. Breath of fresh air. Yeah. yeah. And the majority of people, as a counselor that I have said, are you suicidal? The majority of people are like, no, or some variation of, you know, not really. Occasionally it crossed my mind, but I'm not going to do it, or I don't have a plan, or no. But occasionally there are people that say, I've thought about it. Yeah. So anything other than no, and you do have to do more, and that's yeah. what's so scary. But let me just say, what a gift to the people to know that you're you're courageous enough to look them in yeah. the eye and ask and then if they are courageous enough to be honest with you, you've already crossed the biggest hurdle. Mm -hmm. And that means someone has asked them the question and they have told the truth. Wow. Chances are we have gone a long way toward preventing suicide in that case. Mm. That's such a powerful point that you just made, right? We're not afraid of asking the question. We're afraid of the answer that the question may bring. Ma'am, Miss Jennifer, you know, as we're talking about 
what to do in terms of suicide prevention. I, I, I've mentioned this in the intro of our podcast. I'm going to mention it again here in the outro. But AACC, you specifically have partnered alongside of us and you have come and you have built out this massive hope-focused 3R suicide prevention training program that I want to dive into just briefly today to talk about and mention those 3Rs, which are recognize, respond, and then properly and adequately refer when necessary. The first one, though, recognize, being able to recognize some of the symptoms. And I'm going to ask you, what are some of those, just the true telltale warning signs, or maybe the big indicators that you're seeing more and more revolving around suicide that some of our listeners, whether it's just a friend, it's a family member, it's a loved one that they can begin looking for in people that maybe they're suspecting or having some suicidal ideations. Yeah. And Zach, that's why we did the, uh, the 3R program because yeah. um, there are a greater number of signs and symptoms symptoms um, that you want to recognize beyond what we can just discuss here. But let me give you a few of them. First of all, what we know is that people that struggle with some serious, uh, what we would call serious mental illness, Mm. things like um, clinical depression, bipolar disorder, those that have addictions, we know that a lot of people who struggle with mental illness will at some point um, go through a period where they may become suicidal mm. because dealing with that is very challenging. Dealing yeah. with serious mental illness is very challenging. And part of the, um, just part of what happens with most of these mental illnesses is there is some level of depression and hopelessness that are a part of those. But then also the battle with it, the day mm-hmm. in, day out, uh, counseling and medications. And at some point, even people who are doing very well, will have a period when they're not doing well. And so those folks, particularly some certain types of disorders like chronic depression or bipolar disorder, are particularly vulnerable to suicidal Mm -hmm. ideation. So we know that's a warning sign. Also Mm -hmm. know that um, people that have had some major life crisis or Mm -hmm. traumatic event, it can be the death of a loved one, it can be the loss of a job, can also be legal trouble, financial trouble, anything that people can look at and go, my life is over. And in that moment, it feels like there is no way I can face into the pain of this situation. And they may believe that the best course is in their life. Uh, they may see that situation, whatever it is, as something that's humiliating and embarrassing to their family. It may see that I have wrecked my uh, family's lives, or in some way, I have just ruined my life. It's not true, but in that moment, it can certainly feel true. So yeah. if you've had people in your life that have gone through a major situation like that, don't assume that they're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, ask them about being suicidal, because some people are. Um, even for usually in those people's case, it's a short window of time, but for a time they feel like they just can't face what's happened. Mm. Um, and then there are a lot of people for whom, especially um, young people, mm. for whom it may be something that is sudden and they may be struggling with something, yeah. but then something happens or in their mind, something happens so quickly and we know that for people under the age of about 25 that frontal lobe not being fully developed meaning their impulse control and their ability to think through things in the long term is not that of an adult right that they may do something very impulsive Mm -hmm. and that's what i always say to people the younger the person is the more likely suicide is to be an impulsive decision and some Mm -hmm. uh, research has shown that as short as 10 minutes have elapsed 
between the time a person decided to take their own life and when they took action. There's not even time to intervene in there. Right. I mean, that's a short window of time. So that what that means is for young people, especially, you need to have these conversations about suicide even when everything is going great, That's when right. you think things are going great, we need to have those conversations. Mm. We need to say to young people in our life, um, things like this, no matter what happens, I want you to know that we'll work through anything. Mm. There's nothing that we can't face together. There is nothing that you could do that would disappoint me or make me stop loving you. There is nothing that could change my love for you or God's love for you. Remember, no matter what, there is always hope. There's Mm -hmm. always hope. So those kind of conversations. I would have conversations about suicide with young people. Not like fearful, don't ever commit suicide, don't ever think about, say, you know, it's normal for people, even healthy people, even Mm -hmm. people who love God, to sometimes get hopeless. And in those moments of hopelessness, if we're not careful, we may start to believe that something like suicide would be the best option. It never is, but it may feel like that. And if you ever are in a situation where you start to think that that might be the right way to go, will you promise me that you'll reach out to me? Promise me that you'll talk to someone before you do that kind of thing, before you make that decision. Those are the kind of conversations to have when everything is going great. Mm -hmm. No, it's true. (laughs) And if we did that more often, If we talked about things like suicide, then if we talked about even mental health issues, like, have you ever really felt down? Have you ever felt hopeless? Have you ever started to believe that life wasn't worth living? If we were able to have those conversations with people without the fear and anxiety, then we could give them messages that they could hold on to, that Mm -hmm. stay with us. And so I'm all about, yes, learning to intervene when someone is suicidal, but Mm -hmm. I'm also about talking to the people we love that we care about and having programs just like this about suicide, even when things are going well. Mm. It's so good, Miss Jennifer, as you're saying, just being able to press into those relationships to have those those hard and difficult but necessary conversations. And I wrote down the words, you know, reach out. When somebody goes through a crisis, when someone's going through a really difficult time in life, reach out and do it consistently because it's easy, right, when things go kind of go off the wall for somebody, everybody's reaching out up front. But then all of a sudden when things go silent and it's like a week or so has passed and maybe people aren't reaching out as much, the silence can grow deafening. And so continually reaching out, continually checking in on those people, continually having these conversations when times are good, like you're saying, and when times are bad. That's the first R is recognized. Then I want to move on to the second R, which is to respond. And to this one, I kind of want it to be geared more toward the, the mental health professional out there who's listening. And in terms of, you know, having these difficult conversations, but what are some effective ways, maybe some best practices or even intervention strategies, assessments that you find helpful to be able to walk alongside of people that we know now are actually, you know, really contemplating taking their own life? Yeah. And let me say, Zach, quickly, that the HF3R programs that I did are designed for every person. They're not about mental health professionals. They're like every human being out there, every person in the pew, every parent, every adult, everybody needs the basic respond, uh, recognize, respond, refer of that. Mm -hmm. For mental health professionals, let me encourage you to get more training on suicide. Mm -hmm. I've actually heard a couple of mental health professionals say, oh, I don't specialize in suicide. And I'm like, if you're doing any kind of mental health care, you need to know because even if you don't 
specialize in it, right. um, you are going to have clients that are su- suicidal. The danger is that you'll miss it mm-hmm. if you don't have this training. And it scares us just like it scares everybody right. else. I mean, when you think about it as mental health professionals, there's only one problem that is fatal. And consistently, and that is if you have a client that's suicidal, so we want to say, nope, I don't deal with suicidal people. Well, guess what? (laughs) (laughs) We can't control that. You can't. And, you know, honestly, um, you need to be trained in um, suicide assessment. Yeah. And you need to know when to ask those questions routinely. And, Zach, I learned that even with most of my clients, I check in and we do an informal suicide assessment even if I don't think they're suicidal, but particularly if they have some of the issues that they're struggling with that could become suicidal or they ever have been. But honestly, I think it's good to check in with all your client load and just say, have you ever, it's part of, by the way, part of intake is, have you ever been suicidal? Have you ever thought about taking your own life or attempted? And that needs to be a part of their record. By the way, uh, for mental health professionals, any previous attempt is one of the biggest risk factors for future attempts. That's right. Uh, Also having a family member who has attempted or completed suicide is a huge risk factor. So getting that information in an intake Mm -hmm. and then keeping that in the record and remembering to do regular suicide assessments, those are important. But if you haven't been trained in a method of suicide assessment, I'm going to mention a couple of things. There are lots of wonderful tools out there and wonderful trainings. Um, the one that I teach and have taught at a lot of AACC conferences and intensives mm. is a model called the safety model of suicide assessment. It's yeah. um, issued by SAMHSA. It's uh, what I'll say an oldie but a goodie in yeah. terms of a classic model of suicide assessment. Yeah. If you're starting out, there's even an app for that, Zach. There's a safety hey. app that you can <laughs> download on your phone that will walk you through all of the steps of a suicide assessment. So wow. no matter where you are in your office, um, you can go through this. There are online trainings. There are trainings, so many trainings for safety. And it's basically a wonderful model that just takes you through every step in a suicide assessment and yeah. says, ask these questions, do these things, document these things. So um, that's one that I, I recommend. Now, there's a new model that I want to uh, talk about a little bit because of the research out yeah. there. And it's called CAMS. It's Collaborate Assessment and Management of Suicidality. It was created by Dr. David Jobes. And the research out there is just really, really incredibly good Hmm. for this CAMS model. Now, this requires a little more extensive training. You do have to go through a fairly extensive training. You have to go through some online training and then a virtual training where you can do role plays. And then if you want to go ahead and be certified, it's a little more extensive. So you can't just learn it in you know, one easy step or online course like safety. So what I recommend is if you are a person who has a high acuity caseload, that means you have a lot of clients who either suffer from uh, serious mental illness or a lot who deal with things like PTSD and, um, you know, even bipolar disorder, those things that have high suicide rates. But also if you just have a higher acuity caseload, meaning you have a lot of people in crisis, a lot of people who are struggling. If you work in a setting 
like a residential treatment facility or inpatient treatment or an addictions treatment center, you really need to get CAMS mm. because you're dealing with a higher acuity caseload. Uh, for a person who says, well, I have a, a, you know, occasionally I'll have a high acuity person, but the majority of my caseload are really high functioning people that are doing well, or I do mostly marital counseling. Yeah. It might be overkill to go to the extensive uh, right. work that, it, that you need right. to do to get CAMS. I think the safety and a, some of, you know, uh, intensive training or one-day training should be fine for you. Mm. But if you're a person, like I said, who deals with high acuity caseload or you're in a setting where most of your clients are in crisis, um, I think uh, going to get Mm. the collaborative and assessment assessment management of suicidality training might be something that's really helpful. Uh, By the way, it was on my list of of, uh, programs to go into, but then I kind of got sidetracked in in getting it because I had to have eye surgery (laughs) earlier this year. But it's still on my list of, of getting that training. Just because I'm really impressed with the research and and some of the uh, concepts in it, Zach, are simply that rather than this kind of all or nothing that we've had as clinicians, like you cannot commit suicide, never commit suicide, it's more going in and saying, I'm not taking over and controlling my clients. I'm collaborating and engaging and saying, let's talk about how to manage these thoughts of suicide because it's normal to go through what you're going through and start to feel hopeless. Mm. And so rather than us reacting and getting really scared and putting ourselves in an adversarial relationship with our clients, like, okay, you're you're saying you're going to kill yourself and I'm not going to let you do that. We've become an adversary rather than having a collaborative relationship to say, you know what? I don't want you to take your own life. I don't think that's the right way to solve your problem. Mm. But acknowledging that they're trying to solve a problem, let me help you and let's collaborate on how we can solve the problems. And like you said, Mm -hmm. which is so true, they don't really want to die. They just want to live differently. They just want life to be different. And so then we say, well, let's collaborate. Can Mm -hmm. you give me a period of time to try to help you change your life? Because I think you can do it and I want to help you do it. And so we become not an adversary, but a collaborative partner in helping them change their lives. And so mm. it's just a different mindset than we yeah. kind of had. And I think uh, it's showing a lot of potential and for our clinicians, maybe a much better path. That's so good. Not an adversary of them, but a collaborative partner to walk alongside of them through yeah. the crazy chaotic journey that we all call life. And I love what you're saying, pushing people to get this training in the suicide prevention programs, whatever that looks like to whatever extent, but understanding that you never know when somebody may come knocking on your door and you have to step up and into this moment to be able to come alongside of somebody and walk through life with them. So doing that is just being like cautious or being able to provide yourself with the skill set necessary so that way you're providing them with the most beneficial and effective care. I appreciate just the different resources that you mentioned there. I'll highlight them again here in the outro and put them in the show notes of the podcast that people can be able to go and click on those uh, to get those resources. The last R though, Miss Jennifer, um, it's a really important one. It's when, like knowing how, but also knowing when to refer. Uh, one of the most critical parts of responding to suicide is knowing how to get someone the professional help that they need and that they deserve. I'm thinking right now, Ms. Jennifer, of the family member, the friend um, that has, they've recognized some of these things, some of these traits and these individuals that they've been walking alongside of and doing life with. They've tried to provide them with those conversations, right, as an outlet or just the empathy necessary in a response. But now 
they're like, okay, I, it's gotten to the point where I feel like they need professional help. How do they go about just navigating these conversations and getting and providing people the professional help that they really need? That's a great question, Zach. And I wish it was as simple as it used to be. So let yeah. me say, um, I've been doing this for many years and it used to be not a problem at all when people would look at me and say, I need to find a good Christian counselor for fill in the blank. Right. Um, the good news is I'm pretty well networked and I know yeah. a lot of Christian counselors across <laughs> the, the country as well as in the region I live in. However, now is the first time since I've been in the field of mental health, which has been I won't quite give away my age, but well <laughs> over 25 years um, that I have struggled mm -hmm. to find a Christian counselor who is taking new clients and can work somebody in quickly mm -hmm. because of the mental health disaster that you referred to. We have so many mental health problems coming out of the pandemic across all ages that our colleagues, uh, Zach, are full. Yeah. Many of them with waiting lists. As sure. you know, um, a lot of Christian counselors have waiting lists that are months or even years long. Right. And I found it a very big challenge to get someone in to see someone. Not impossible, yeah. but the waiting lists are longer. And that's one of the reasons that AACC has launched things like Mental Health Coach. Right. We want to try to get different levels of care. We have got you know, more things coming out every mm -hmm. day to train more people, equip more people, give them more resources for help. So while it's still a challenge, getting people to help when they're suicidal, that's considered uh, a priority. Mm -hmm. So know that uh, there's triage in mental health, just like there is in medicine. Yeah. And someone who is actively suicidal really gets put to the head of the line, if you will. Mm -hmm. So with healthcare systems like hospitals, they should have a someone who can do uh, a suicide evaluation and then get a placement. So if all else fails, take someone to an emergency room. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can put them in the car, let's go to the emergency room. And that may be scary, but that's the best way to find a resource for that person. Um, and then also you may be able to find a Christian counselor. I'm hoping if there are Christian counselors listening, yeah. every Christian counseling center should save at least one or two spots in their uh in their schedule every week at their center um for a crisis situation mm. for somebody who's suicidal so that they can get in if not that day within the next couple of days um i know that can be hard for a center to do but let me say it it does two things it provides an opportunity for someone who is in crisis to get in. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have a person in crisis fill that slot, well, it's an extra hour in the day to do charts and, and to, to write notes, to, um, actually get caught up or, or help our own mental health as, as counselors. It's not a problem to leave a little bit of play in the schedule yeah. because we need to do that. We need to be able to triage. Mm -hmm. Uh, we need to have emergency and crisis response opportunities in mental health the same way that we do in healthcare. Um, we just don't have, and I think it's a plan for the future, but we don't have mental health urgent cares. Right. We need them. Right. We need those we resources yeah. just for emergencies. But right now we don't have that. Mm. And because I think this is the first time, at least since I've been alive, that we haven't been able to get people in right. to mental health care right away. So we as a 
uh, a whole field, mm-hmm. our mental health uh, count- counterparts are having to figure out how can we do this better? Yeah. And I think we will. Yeah. And there is the suicide crisis line, Zach. Yep. Let me say yep. uh, there's a phone number and now is it 988? Am I 988. right? Yes, ma'am. You can call anytime from any phone. Now you can also text mm-hmm. because we understand that younger generations sometimes don't actually pick up the phone and call. So there are those resources that are national mm-hmm. um, where people can access someone 24 7, 365. So uh, those. 988, the suicide hotlines, and then also taking people to an emergency room is if you can't get them to a mental health professional in another way, those are the the way that you go. But if you have someone who answers that question, yes, I'm suicidal, and like the story I told you, I've got a gun at home, or I have sleeping pills at home, or I'm going to go do this, um, then you really don't, you want to keep them safe. Yeah. And that means getting them to someone who is better equipped to do that than you, a higher level of care. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe if it's someone who said, no, I'm really not going to kill myself. I don't have a plan. I'm not going to do that today. It doesn't mean they don't need help. Yeah. They may have a little more time. You yeah. have a window. But know that when we're even considering that, it means that we're in pain and that mm-hmm. we've got some issues that we need help with. That's right. And whether that is tomorrow or next week or next month getting them to a resource mm-hmm. a professional counselor a pastor a life coach a someone a mental health coach somebody that has a little more training that can start that process is a critical step and that means right now you need to find out what those resources are in your community in your church like i said you can you can call the numbers those are available to everyone but then doing a little research and finding out what those resources are around you and and just making sure you're aware of what to do when and if that time comes can really be helpful Mm. The old saying around here, asking for help can be hard, finding help shouldn't be. And I think you just gave us so many valuable resources, whether it's the 988 suicide hotline, whether it's, you know, if you have a friend or a loved one in need, taking them to a place like the hospital, being able to take them to a counseling center. Um, I'm thankful that you mentioned some things that we offer with the AACC and just that's our heart is to train individuals to build up even the church as a place that people can go to and get and receive the necessary care in terms of helping them recognize, right? Helping them respond and then helping them refer out to these centers. But also I just thought of our CCC Christian Care Connect, right? Just being able to look that up online to find a Christian counselor or a Christian mental health coach, even in your local area, just different resources that we want to offer people that are in times of need, that are in times of great challenge and adversity, and they just need hope and they just need to be pointed back to their ultimate source of healing, Miss Jennifer, which is the Lord himself. Absolutely. What I want to mention now, um, we've talked a lot about walking alongside of those who are in the crisis, those that are um, dealing with suicidal ideation, but we haven't talked really about those that have been impacted by it personally. I can think of a couple of people right now, Miss Jennifer, that are going through a difficult season of life. They have been, you know, riddled by just different people that have um, inflicted self-wound. Uh, they've lost some loved ones to suicide, and they need to be supported and nurtured along this time as well. How can we just best support and walk alongside of them and encourage them during those moments when they've just been impacted um, just by the the awful kind of the peace that suicide leaves them with too. Absolutely. And Zach, my heart just breaks for every survivor of suicide. That's what we call them in the field. And that is someone 
whose life is just really broken into mm. by someone they love taking their own life. Yeah. What we know in terms of uh, grief is another specialty area of mm. mine, and what we know is it can take twice as long to grieve a death by suicide as it does a death of, of any other kind, really. Right. It's one of the most complicated grief processes. Right. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that, yeah. but it's always a traumatic death mm -hmm. because there is something that's so devastating mm -hmm. to think not only did your loved one die but they made a choice that it was better for them to die than to live and that's mm -hmm. just so heartbreaking mm -hmm. that being said like you said we really want to reach out to the survivors yeah and to be able to help them and minister to them the tragedy is that so many of them through the years have told me about either being really abandoned mm -hmm. and and that's let me say please don't because you're afraid because you don't know what to say yeah please don't avoid these people right, right. they've had a terrible loss mm -hmm. and if you don't say anything other than i am so sorry can i pray for you and give them a hug bring them a casserole tell mm -hmm. them you love them and that you're praying for them mm -hmm. But if you can get some specialized training, and like yeah. I said, the the uh, HF3R does kind of touch on that. We've got some other wonderful tools and resources. But um, I'm going to um, just mention a few things yeah. that are sort of a list of do's and don'ts. Mm -hmm. I wish I didn't have to say this, but in working with a lot of survivors of suicide, I've learned that many of them, in fact most, have had someone of faith say to them your loved one is in hell mm -hmm. or they they are condemned to hell because mm -hmm. of their choice and even if you believe that we don't want to get into a theological yeah. debate let me say i don't believe that and yeah. many um incredible theologians and pastors uh don't believe that that's biblical either mm -hmm. but it, even if that is your belief system please don't say that to right. a person who's lost someone to suicide it is not a comfort and it in fact is what we call a secondary wound yes it's like a deep knife in the heart um, that you are, are just tortured by that thought. And so please don't say that, even if you believe it. What is often helpful to say, other than I'm so sorry for your loss, is to speak about who the person was and how they lived, not just mm. how they died. Mm. Because I've heard from so many families that I want someone to say their name, say, I'm so sorry that you lost John or Katie or Sarah or Jim. Say their name. Um, also, say that you loved that person and share a memory or something yeah. that was wonderful about them because a lot of the survivors say, I'm so afraid that they won't remember how this person lived. They'll only remember how they died. Mm. And so there are so many wonderful things and grieving families, grieving loved ones want to know that you remember that person for the wonderful, treasured, precious son or daughter of God that they were. So those are just a couple of things. And then mm -hmm. just understand that this is a really painful process. Yeah. Uh, don't ask questions that are probing into the whys, because oftentimes families are struggling with that too. Mm -hmm. Let me say uh, the question, why didn't you get help for them? <laughs> Well, that implies that somehow the loved one is guilty or responsible or should have done more. Right. And um, didn't you see any signs? Well, they may be asking themselves those questions, but just know that the kind of questions that imply shoulda, coulda, woulda done more, mm. they're already beating themselves up. And in many cases, they had no warning. 
they didn't know or they did get them help. They were getting help. They did have counselors. They had all the, the help that could possibly be given and they still made that choice. So there, those kind of questions generally aren't helpful and, and just allowing that person to share what they want when they want and being there for them are, are really the best things that you can do. And there are special resources. Uh, including support groups mm -hmm. that are just for survivors of suicide called SOS, uh, survivors of suicide support groups. And because it's such a unique kind of loss that sometimes the only people who can really understand are people who've walked that journey. That's right. I appreciate what you said about not inflicting those secondary wounds during that time because those survivors of suicide, they also will naturally struggle with that survivor's guilt. I should have seen this, right? So they don't need to be beaten down anymore in that way whatsoever. They need to be uplifted. They need to be encouraged. They need to be loved on. They need to be seen and heard, like you said, in their own timing when they want to talk about it. But just knowing that, I always say that your presence oftentimes is more important than your perspective to them, right? 100%. So just being there, they don't really need you to speak even sometimes. They just need to know that you're in their corner. What I say when it comes to talking, less is more. Yep. When in doubt, don't. Yep. <laughs> and, um, you know, the people that I see do what we call psychological first aid, which yeah. is really what we're talking about the best, um, are, are the dogs, the crisis response dogs, the comfort dogs. And I That's often right. laugh and joke, they don't talk too much. <laughs> you know, that's True. why they do it so well. They're just there and they love on you and they care. Mm -hmm. And people just kind of, oh, melt into the dogs because they don't. Uh, the dogs are also not judgmental. Hmm. They're not looking for answers. But let me say, I understand why people often ask the questions and make yeah. the statements because we all struggle with the why. Oh. And I think the reason people do either avoid those who've lost loved ones to suicide or make those kind of comments is because we're so terrified that if it happened to you, it could happen to me. Hmm. And I have to believe that somehow there is something that I could do or know or do differently because otherwise it means I'm powerless and this could happen to me. And I think that's our greatest fear. Isn't that our greatest fear Absolutely. as a counselor, yeah. uh, as, as a parent, uh, as just a friend, that someone we love is hurting so badly that they might consider ending their life and we might not know or we mm. might not be able to stop it. Mm. So good, Miss Jennifer. Let me tell you this. This has been such an enlightening and insightful um, conversation for myself. I know it has been uh, for countless listeners as well. I'm so incredibly thankful just for your wisdom, for your knowledge. I want to just um, harp on that you are a gift not only to the mental health field and profession, but also to myself, to my family. Uh, my dad loves and appreciates all the work that you do alongside of us here at the AACC, but everybody here at the AACC, you have truly blessed us just with your presence and just being able to partner and team up with you for uh, throughout so many years. But as we close, Miss Jennifer, um, I always love leaving the door open for our guests just to share a very pressing word that they believe God has placed on their heart for such a time as this. So the person that I really want you to speak to is maybe the listener out there that feels discouraged, that feels disappointed, maybe to the point of being defeated in life. They've gone through a really difficult time. Maybe they're going through and they're struggling right now. They're sucking some wind. Miss Jennifer, maybe they even gotten to the point that they believe that this world would be better off without them. What's the word of hope, 
of encouragement and of motivation that you want to leave us with today that would maybe just breathe some life and some fight back into them? And let me say, you're not alone. Mm. You're not alone in feeling that, but you're also not alone in this world. Mm. And I think that's the hope that I want to give people. Let me just share a, a couple of stories here at the end. And that is... Um, there was an article a number of years ago written by a psychiatrist um, in the New Yorker magazine about people who had uh, taken their own life, particularly those who had jumped from the Golden Gate Bridge. Mm. And um, he had actually been working with a young man who was suicidal, and when he didn't show up for an appointment, he called law enforcement, and they went to the young man's apartment. He found a note, and the note said, I'm going to the bridge to jump. If one person smiles at me, I won't jump. But he had taken his own life. I'm going to contrast that with um, with another story about a young man in England who had had a terrible mental health diagnosis, was very despondent. He went to a bridge there in England to jump in London. He was um, standing on the bridge getting ready to jump. Tons of people walking past. And most people were just walking right past him, not even noticing him. But one man noticed this young man looking out at the water and stopped. He didn't know him, didn't know his name, but he stood there and he said, are you okay? And the young man opened up. This name, uh, man's name was Johnny Benjamin, the, the man who was getting ready to jump. And he spent um, about a half an hour with this man. And then he, he said, let me get you some help. And he called, um, called I guess, m- maybe law enforcement or emergency care. I don't know what they have in London. Yeah. But uh, that he, he stayed there with this young man until he was put in the car. And he thanked him and he drove off. And, and he went into a, a hospital, got the help he needed. And afterwards, Johnny was sitting with his girlfriend going, I don't even know this man's name. So they started a Facebook campaign to say it was called Find Mike. His name wasn't mm-hmm. Mike, but they didn't even know what his name was. And they actually found the man who stopped that day on the bridge to wow. help him. And, and he was able to say thank you for what you did. But it's wow. the story of, of two men who were in desperate situation. And one didn't feel that anyone even saw him. Mm-hmm. No one even looked him in the eyes and smiled at him. And that little bit might have made a difference. Mm-hmm. But with Johnny, having someone look at him notice him, see him, take their time out of their day to care for him and make sure he got the help he needed was the turning point. And so let me say to any person out there who's hurting, you are valuable. You matter. Mm -hmm. There are people who love you. There are people who care. There are people who want to help. Mm -hmm. And if they're even if they're not around you right now, you look out, you make eye contact, you call somebody, you talk to someone because you matter. Every person matters. And I firmly believe, and at the end of the day, the big reason why I do this is God loves every human being that he created. They are his children, his precious sons and daughters. And his heart would be grieved and devastated for you to end your life. And the majority of the people that know you are devastated. Let me say, suicide leaves so much pain in its wake. And you may think that the world is better off without you. The truth is, every person is designed with a purpose that only you can fulfill. And if you end your life prematurely, there is a huge hole. Mm -hmm. And that hole that you are supposed to be in won't be filled. And we may never know, um, at least not until the other side, 
what that emptiness will create. But trust me, God has a plan and a purpose for your life. Even if it doesn't seem like it right now, he does. And there's a reason to keep living, a reason to reach tomorrow. There's hope. There is hope. You matter. You're not alone. And the challenge that you leave us with is make sure you go out and you see somebody today. See them in a time of need. See them when they need you the most. Because I believe that God would love nothing more than using people through which he channels his message of hope, encouragement, and love onto others. Miss Jennifer, I cannot thank you enough just for taking the time to have just a much needed and again, insightful conversation with us today. Thank you for all that you do, for the impact and influence you have on countless lives, including my own. I really appreciate you, ma'am. Oh, thank you, Zach. And thank you for doing this important, important topic and speaking these words. I know God will use it. Thank you. Man, you guys, I don't know about you, but I was so incredibly blessed by just the incredible insight and really the wealth of knowledge and wisdom and experience that Jennifer shared with us that she has collected throughout all of these years. It makes me want to get more and more into the fight. And that's what I want to share with you guys here for a second is to further equip you guys for all that we're up against. If you want to take that next step and you want to dive into this fight with us and coming alongside of and caring for those who are in desperate need of help, hope, and encouragement, we have an invaluable resource for you today. We here at the AACC actually have an online university called Light University, where we offer certification-based programs in biblical counseling, life coaching, crisis response, marriage and family therapy, mental health coaching, and continuing education as well. But one of the many things that we offer are suicide prevention programs. One of them is our hope-focused 3R, which are the three R's that you just heard about in terms of recognize, respond, and refer, our hope-focused 3R suicide prevention program. And so what we want to do today is if you just take a look in our show notes at the very bottom, you'll see several links. They'll provide you with some incredible tools such as the safety suicide prevention resource Jennifer was discussing in the episode today. But then you'll also see a link titled hope-focused 3R suicide prevention training program. And this is an in-depth training led by Jennifer where she goes deeper into the ways in which we can better recognize the problems, risk factors, and warning signs of suicide, respond to someone who is suicidal, as well as refer and get someone the help they need when necessary. My friends, we have two specific trainings. One's for adults and one's for youth. They're typically the value of around $200 to $250. But because of the pressing need we're seeing in our country today, and in honor of May being Mental Health Awareness Month and this being our Mental Health Awareness Series, we've decided to gift these to you for only $50. All you have to do, again, go to the bottom of the show notes here, click on the link next to the words Hope Focus 3R Suicide Prevention Training Program, and it will take you directly to the bundle where you will get the adult and youth version of our faith-based suicide prevention training programs for only $50. It's like that old saying, asking for help can be hard, but finding help shouldn't be. Our prayer is that you would join us and that you would step up and step into this moment understanding that somebody's life may depend on it and that you would join us in the midst of the fight that we find ourselves in. I'm incredibly thankful for Jennifer and just the incredible wealth of knowledge and wealth of wisdom that she shared with us today. 
I pray that you would be encouraged by just the several, not only the resources that she mentioned to us that we can begin looking to, if you're a helper or if you're a provider, but if you're somebody who just is broken, just going through a difficult time right now, I pray that you would be encouraged in hearing Jennifer and her story and her passion and understanding that there is help and that there is hope. My friends, hope is a person And his name is Jesus, someone that can resonate with you in the midst of any pain you may be going through. You are seen, you are heard, and you are loved with an unfathomable love. That's the God that we get the opportunity of serving. And my prayer is, is that each and every day you would be able to press into that hope. So that way you could eventually embody that same hope for somebody else. There are several resources. If you're at a point in life and you've just listened to that this entire interview and you feel like you're struggling with suicidal ideation, my friends, there are several resources that you can turn to, as Jennifer mentioned. One of them, a very simple one, is 988, which is the suicide prevention hotline. Just being able to make a phone call to be able to save a life. Maybe that life's your own. There's also several people out there, mental health providers, counselors, and coaches that want to walk alongside of you. So what I want to challenge you right now, if you're going through a tough season and you need help, please ask for it. It's not embarrassing and it's not humiliating. I actually believe that vulnerability is strength to be able to be your full self, to be authentic, to admit that you're broken because we all are. We're all broken individuals. So don't be afraid to admit that you are to receive the help that not only you may need right now, but that you deserve, my friend. You're worth it. I just want you to hear those words again. You're worth it. And you matter. And your life matters. And I may not know you. I may not know you from Adam. You just may be hearing my voice right now. But I want to remind you of this one truth. This world is not better off without you. This world needs people like you. I love you. And I appreciate you. And I'm so glad you're here on this earth. And I'm so glad that you are listening to this message right now because you are worth it. I pray um, for all of you providers as well, that you would continually just look into all the incredible resources that Mrs. Jennifer provides. I pray that you would look up um, the American Association of Christian Counselors and all that we have to provide here when it comes to our Christian Counseling Connect, when it comes to just different events that you can come to, when it comes to different trainings and programs that we have been able to form and develop throughout the years because we want to help equip you to be able to meet the need of somebody who is in a crisis or traumatic type of moment and needs you in those moments, just like Jennifer when she was a 16-year-old girl, to be able to step up in a moment and just to walk alongside of somebody and remember your presence is what matters more than your perspective in most of those moments. So just being able and strengthened and equipped to say, I can step up and step into this moment because somebody may be depending on it. And my prayer is that after today's episode, you would be encouraged to go and seek out further training. So that way you can be fully equipped, fully educated, and fully encouraged to do just that, to step up, to step in, and to be present and attuned with someone in a moment of need. My friends, thank you guys so much for just being a part of this very integral and what I believe is one of the most important conversations we have and probably ever will have on this podcast network because 
I just want people to realize that you're seen, that you're heard, and that you're loved. Please, please, please reach out for help. As always, thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you next time right here on the Build Different Podcast.